Section 10 of the South Pole. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Naksha. The South Pole by Roald Amundsen. Translation by A.G. Carter. Section 10, Volume 1, Chapter 4, From Madeira to the Barrier, Part 2. We had expected to reach the equator by October 1st, but the unfavorable conditions of wind that we met with to the north of it caused us to be a little behind our reckoning, though not much. On the afternoon of October 4th, the Fram crossed the line. Thus an important stage of the voyage was concluded. The feeling that we had now reached the southern latitudes was enough to put us all in holiday humor, and we felt we must get a modest entertainment. According to ancient custom, crossing the line should be celebrated by a visit from Father Neptune himself, whose part is taken for the occasion by someone chosen from among the ship's company. If in the course of his inspection this august personage comes upon anyone who is unable to prove that he has already crossed the famous circle, he is handed over at once to the attendants to be shaved and baptized. This process, which is not always carried out with exaggerated gentleness, causes much amusement and forms a welcome variety in the monotonous life of a long sea voyage. And probably, many on board the Fram looked forward with eagerness to Neptune's visit, but he did not come. There was simply no room for him on our already well-occupied deck. We contented ourselves with a special dinner, followed by coffee, liqueurs and cigars. Coffee was served on the foredeck, whereby, moving a large number of dogs, we had contrived to get a few square yards of space. There was no lack of entertainment. A violin and mandolin orchestra, composed of Prestrud, Sunbeck, and Beck, contributed several pieces, and our excellent gramophone was heard for the first time, just as it started the waltz, from the Count of Luxembourg. There appeared in the companion way a real ballet girl masked and in very short skirts this unexpected apparition from a better world was greeted with warm applause which was no less vigorous when the fair one had given proof of her skill in the art of dancing behind the mask could be detected churchin's face but both costume and dance were in the highest degree feminine ron was not satisfied until he had the lady on his knees hooray for illusion the gramophone now changed to a swinging american cakewalk and at the same moment there opportunely appeared on the scene a nigger in a tailcoat a silk hat and a pair of wooden shoes black as he was we saw at once that it was the second-in-command who had thus disguised himself the mere sight of him was enough to set us all shrieking with laughter but he made his great success when he began to dance he was intensely amusing. It did us all a great deal of good to have a little amusement just then. This part of the voyage was a trial of patience more than anything else. Possibly we were rather hard to please, but the southeast trade which we were expecting to meet every day was, in our opinion, far too late in the coming. And when at length it arrived, it did not behave at all as becomes a wind that has the reputation of being the steadiest in the world. Besides being far too light, according to our requirements, 
It permitted itself such irregularities as swinging between the points of south and east. It was mostly in the neighborhood of the former. For us, who had to lie all the time close hauled to the westward, this had the effect of increasing our western longitude a great deal faster than our latitude. We were rapidly approaching the northeastern point of South America, Cape Sand Rock. Fortunately, we escaped any closer contact with this headland which shoots so far out into the Atlantic. The wind at last shifted aft, but it was so light that the motor had to be constantly in use. Slowly but surely, we now went southward, and the temperature again began to approach the limits that are fitting according to an ordinary's ideas. The tiresome, rather low awning could be removed, and it was a relief to be rid of it, as one could then walk upright everywhere. On October 16th, according to observations at noon, we were in the vicinity of the island of South Trinidad, one of the lonely oases in the watery desert of South Atlantic. It was our intention to go under the island, and possibly to attempt a landing. But unfortunately, the motor had to be stopped for cleaning, and this prevented our approaching it by daylight. We caught a glimpse of the land at dusk, which was at all events enough to check our chronometers. South of the 20th degree of latitude, the southeast trade was nearly done with, and we were really not sorry to be rid of it. It remained light and scant to the last, and sailing on a wind is not a strong point with the Fram. In the part of the ocean where we now were, there was a hope of getting good wind, and it was wanted if we were to come out right. We had now covered 6,000 miles, but there were still 10,000 before us, and the days went by with astonishing rapidity. The end of October brought the change we wanted. With a fresh northerly breeze, we went gallantly southward, and before the end of the month, we were down in latitude 40 degrees. Here we had reached the waters where we were almost certain to have all the wind we wished, and from the right quarter. From now, our course was eastward along what is known as the southern west wind belt. This belt extends between the 40th and 50th parallels all around earth and is distinguished by the constant occurrence of westerly winds, which as a rule blow with great violence. We had put our trust in these west winds. If they failed us, we should be in a mess. But no sooner had we reached their domain than they were upon us with full force. It was no gentle treatment that we received, but the effect was excellent. We raced eastward. An intended call at Grove Island had to be abandoned. The sea was running too high for us to venture to approach the narrow little harbour. The month of October had put us all a good deal behind hand, but now we were making up the distance we had lost. We had reckoned on being south of Cape of Good Hope within two months after leaving Madeira, and this turned out correct. The day we passed the meridian of Cape, we had the first regular gale. The seas ran threateningly high, but now for the first time, our splendid little ship showed what she was worth. A single one of these gigantic waves would have cleared our decks in an instant if it had not come on board, but the Fram did not permit any such impertinence. When they came up behind the vessel, and we might expect any moment to see them break over low after deck, she raised herself with such an elegant movement and the wave had to be content with slipping underneath. An albatross could not have managed the situation better. 
is said that the fram was built for the eyes and that cannot of course be denied but at the same time it is certain that when colin archer created this famous masterpiece of an ice boat she was just as much a masterpiece of a sea boat a vessel it would be difficult to match for seaworthiness to be able to avoid the seas as the fram did she had to roll and this we had every opportunity of finding out the whole long passage through the westerly belt was one continual rolling but in course of time one got used to that discomfort it was awkwardly enough but less disagreeable than shipping water perhaps it was for worse for those who had to work in the galley it is no laughing matter to be cook when for weeks together you cannot put down so much as a coffee cup without its immediately turning a somersault it requires both patience and strong will to carry it through but the two lindstrom and olsen who looked after our food under these difficult conditions had the gift of taking it all from the humorous point of view and that was well as regard the dogs it mattered little to them whether a gale or storm was blowing so long as the rain kept off they hate rain wet in any form is the worst one can offer an arctic dog if the deck was wet they would not lie down but would remain standing motionless for hours trying to take a nap in that uncomfortable position of course they did not get much sleep in that way but to make up for it they could sleep all day and all night when the weather was fine south of the cape we lost two dogs they went overboard one dark night when the ship was rolling tremendously we had a coal bunker on the port side after deck reaching up to the height of bulwarks probably these fellows had been practicing boarding drill and lost their balance we took precautions that the same thing should not happen again fortunately for our animals the weather in the westerly belt was subject to very frequent changes no doubt they had many a sleepless night with rain sleet and hail but on the other hand they never had to wait for very long for a cheerful glimpse of the sun the wind is for the most part of cyclonic character shifting suddenly from one quarter to another and these shifts always involve a change of weather when the barometer begins to fall it is a sure warning of an approaching northwesterly wind which is always accompanied by precipitation and increases in force until the fall of the barometer ceases when this occurs there follows either a short pause or else the wind suddenly shifts to the southwest and blows from that quarter with increasing violence while the barometer rises rapidly this change of wind is almost always followed by a clearing of the weather a circumstance which contributes to an element of risk to navigation in the latitudes where we found ourselves is the possibility of colliding with an iceberg in darkness or thick weather for it sometimes happens that these sinister monsters in the course of their wanderings find a way to well up into the forties the probability of a collision is of course in itself not very great and it can be reduced to a minimum by taking proper precautions at night an attentive and practiced lookout man will always be able to see the blink of the eyes at a fairly long distance from the time when we had to reckon with any likelihood of meeting icebergs the temperature of the water was also taken every two hours during the night as kerguelen island lay almost directly in the course we intended to follow it was decided for several reasons that we should call there and pay a visit to the norwegian whaling section latterly many of the dogs had begun to grow thin 
and it seemed probable that this was owing to their not having enough fatty substances in their food. On Kedguelin Island, there would presumably be an opportunity of getting all the fat we wanted. As to water we had, it was true, just enough to last us with economy, but it would not do us harm to fill up the tanks. I was also hoping there would be a chance of engaging three or four extra hands, for the Fram would be rather short-handed with only ten men to sail her out of ice and around the Horn to Buenos Aires after the rest of us had been landed on the barrier. Another reason for the contemplated visit was that it would be an, an agreeable diversion. We now only had to get there as quickly as possible, and the west wind helped us splendidly. One stiff breeze succeeded another without our having any excessive weather. Our daily distance at this time amounted as a rule to about 150 miles. In one 24 hours, we made 174 miles. This was our best day's work of the whole voyage, and it had no better performance for a vessel like the Fram with her limited sail area and her heavily laden hull. On the afternoon of November 28th, we sighted land. It was only a barren rocky knoll, and according to our determination of the position, it would be the island called Blyce Cap, which lies a few miles north of Kerguelen Island. But as the weather was not very clear, we were unacquainted with the channels. We preferred to lie to for the night before approaching any nearer. Early next morning, the weather was cleared, and we got accurate bearings. The course was laid for Royal Sound, where we supposed the whaling station to be situated. We were going well in the fresh morning breeze and were just about to round the last headland when all at once a gale sprang up. The bare and uninviting coast was hidden in heavy rain and we had the choice of waiting for an indefinite time or continuing our voyage. Without much hesitation, we chose the latter alternative. It might be tempting enough to come in contact with other men, especially as they were fellow countrymen but it was even more tempting to have done with the remaining 4,000 miles that lay between us and the barrier as quickly as possible. It turned out that we had chosen rightly. December brought us a fair wind, even fresher than that of November. And by the middle of the month, we had already covered half the distance between Kerguelen Island and our goal. We fortified the dogs from time to time with a liberal allowance of butter, which had a marvellous effect. There was nothing wrong with ourselves. We were all in the best of health, and our spirits rose as we drew nearer our goal. That the state of our health was so remarkably good during the whole voyage must be ascribed in a material degree to the excellence of our provisions. During the trip from home to Madeira, we had lived sumptuously on some little pigs that we took with us, but after these luxuries we had to take to tinned meat for good. The change was not felt much, as we had excellent and palatable things with us. There was a separate service for the two cabins, but the food was precisely the same in each. Breakfast was at eight, consisting of American hot cakes with marmalade or jam, cheese, fresh bread, and coffee or cocoa. Dinner, as a rule, was composed of one dish of meat and sweets. As had already been said, we could not afford to have soup regularly on account of the water it required, and it was only served on Sundays. The second course usually consisted of Californian fruit. It was our aim all through to employ fruit, vegetables and jam to the greatest possible extent. There is undoubtedly no better means of avoiding sickness. At dinner, we always drank syrup and water. Every Wednesday and Saturday, we were treated 
to a glass of spirits i knew from my own experience how delicious a cup of coffee tastes when one turns out to go on watch at night however sleepy and grumpy one may be a gulp of hot coffee quickly makes a better man of one therefore coffee for the night watch was a permanent institution on board the fram by about christmas we had reached nearly the 150th meridian in latitude 56 degrees south this left not much more than 900 miles before we might expect to meet with the pack ice a glorious west wind which had driven us forward for weeks and freed us from all the anxiety about arriving too late was now a thing of the past for a change we again had to contend for some days with calms and contrary wind the day before christmas eve brought rain and a gale from the southwest which was not very cheerful if we were to keep christmas with any festivity fine weather was wanted otherwise the everlasting rolling would spoil all our attempts no doubt we should all have got over it if it had fallen to our lot to experience a christmas eve with the storm shortened sail and other delights worse things had happened before on the other hand there was not one of us who would not be the better for a little comfort and relaxation our life had been monotonous and commonplace enough for a long time but as i said the day before christmas eve was not all promising the only sign of the approaching holiday was the fact that lindstrom in spite of the rolling was busy baking christmas cakes we suggested that he might as well give us each our share at once as it is well known that the cakes are the best when they come straight out of the oven but lindstrom would not hear of it his cakes vanished for the time being under lock and key and we had to be content with the smell of them christmas eve arrived with fine weather and a smoother sea than we had seen for weeks the ship was perfectly steady and there was nothing to prevent our making every preparation for the festivity as the day wore on christmas was in full swing the fore cabin was washed and cleaned up until ripple and paint and the brass shone with equal brilliance ron decorated the workroom with signal flags and the good old happy christmas greeted us in a transparency over the door of the saloon inside nilson was busily engaged showing greater talents as a decorator the gramophone was rigged up in my cabin on a board hung from the ceiling proposed concert of piano violin and mandolin had to be abandoned as the piano was altogether out of tune the various members of our little community appeared one after another dressed and tidied up so that many of them were scarcely recognizable the stubbly chins were all smooth and that makes a great difference at five o'clock the engine was stopped and all the hands assembled on the fore cabin leaving only the man at the wheel on the deck our cozy cabins had a fairy-like appearance in the subdued light of many-colored lamps and we were all in the christmas humor at once the decorations not honored to him who had carried them out and to those who had given us the greater part of them mrs crow and the proprietor of oyster cellar at christiania mr ditliff hansen then we took our seats round the table which groaned beneath lindstrom's masterpieces in the culinary art i slipped behind the curtain of my cabin for an instant and set the gramophone going harold sangas glade jewel the song did not fail of its effect it was difficult to see in the subdued light but i fancy that among the band of hardy men that sat around the table there was scarcely one who had not a tear in the corner of his eye the thoughts of all took the same direction i am certain 
They flew homeward to the old country in the north, and we could wish nothing better than that those we had left behind should be as well off as ourselves. The melancholy feeling soon gave away to gaiety and laughter. In the course of the dinner, the first mate fired off a topical song written by himself, which had an immense success. In each verse, the little weakness of someone present were exhibited in more or less strong relief, and in between there were marginal remarks in prose, both in text and performance. The author fully attained the object of his work, that of thoroughly exercising our risible muscles. In the after-cabin, a well-furnished coffee table was set out, on which there was a large assortment of Lindstrom's Christmas baking, with a mighty Kranz cake from Hansen Starring in the midst. While we were doing all possible honour to these luxuries, Lindstrom was busily engaged forward, and when we went back after our coffee, we found there a beautiful Christmas tree in all its glory. The tree was an artificial one, but so perfectly imitated that it might have come straight from the forest. This was also a present from Mrs. Crowell. Then came the distribution of Christmas presents. Among the many kind friends who had thought of us, as I must mention, the ladies' committee in Horton and Freestad and the telephone employees of Christiania. They all have a claim in our warmest gratitude for the share they had in making our Christmas what it was, a bright memory of the long voyage. By ten o'clock in the evening, the candles of Christmas tree were burnt out, and the festivity was at an end. It had been successful from first to last, and we all had something to live on in our thoughts when our everyday duties again claimed us. In that part of the voyage which we now had before us, the region between Australian continent and the Antarctic belt of pack ice, we were prepared for all sorts of trials in the way of unfavourable weather conditions. We had read and heard so much of what others had to face in these waters that we involuntarily connected them with all the horrors that may befall a sailor. Not that we had a moment's fear for the ship. We knew her well enough to be sure that it would take some very extraordinary weather to do her any harm. If we were afraid of anything, it was of delay. But we were spared either delay or any other trouble. By noon, on Christmas Day, we had just what was wanted to keep our spirits a festival pitch. A fresh northwesterly wind, just strong enough to push us along the handsomely toward our destination. It afterwards hauled a little more to the west and lasted the greater part of Christmas week until on December 30th we were in longitude 160 degree east and latitude 60 degree south. With that, we had at last come far enough to the east and could now begin to steer a southerly course. Hardly had we put the helm over the wind changed to a stiff northerly breeze. Nothing could possibly be better. In this way, it would not take us long to dispose of the remaining degree of latitude. Our faithful companions of the westerly belt, the albatrosses, had now disappeared and we could soon begin to look out for the representatives of the wing inhabitants of Antarctica. After a careful consideration of the experiences of our predecessors, it was decided to lay our course so that we should cross the 65th parallel in longitude 175 degree east. What we had to do was to get as quickly as possible through the belt of pack ice that blocked the way to the Ross Sea to the south of it, which is always open in summer. 
Some ships had been detained as much as six weeks in this belt of ice. Others had gone through in a few hours. We unhesitatingly preferred to follow the latter example and therefore took the course that the luckier ones had indicated. Of course, the width of ice belt may be subject to somewhat fortuitous changes, but it seems nevertheless that as a rule, the region between the 175th and the 180th degrees of longitude offers the best chance of getting through rapidly. In any case, one ought not to enter the ice farther to the west. At noon on New Year's Eve, we were in latitude 62 degree 15 south, we had reached the end of old year and really it had gone incredibly quickly. Like all its predecessors, the year had bought its share of successes and failure. But the main thing was that at its close, we found ourselves pretty nearly where we ought to be to make our good calculations and all safe and well. Conscious of this, we said goodbye to 1910 in all friendliness over a good glass of toddy in the evening and wished each other all possible luck in 1911. At three in the morning of New Year's Day, the officer of the watch called me with news that the first iceberg was in sight. I had to go up and see it. Yes, there it lay, far to windward, shining like a castle in the rays of the morning sun. It was a big, flat-topped berg of the typical Antarctic form. It will perhaps seem paradoxical when I say that we all greeted this first sight of ice with satisfaction and joy. An iceberg is usually the last thing to gladden sailor's heart. But we were not looking at just the risk then. The meeting with the imposing colossus had another significance that had a stronger claim on our interest. The pack ice could not be far off. We were all longing as one man to be in it. It would be a grand variation in the monotonous life we had led for so long and which we were beginning to be tired of. Merely to be able to run a few yards on an ice floe appeared to us as an event of importance, and we rejoiced no less at the prospect of giving our dogs a good meal of seal flesh, while we ourselves would have no objection to a little change of diet. The number of icebergs increased during the afternoon and night, and with such neighbours it suited us very well to have daylight all through 24 hours as we now had. The weather could not have been better, fine and clear, with a light but still favourable wind. At 8pm on 2nd January, the Antarctic Circle was crossed, and an hour or two later, the crow's nest was able to report the ice belt ahead. For the time being, it did not look like obstructing us to any greater extent. The floes were collected in long lines, with broad channels of open water between them. We steered right in. Our position was then longitude 176 degree east and latitude 60 degree 30 south. The ice immediately stopped all swell. The vessel's deck again became a stable platform and after two months incessant exercise of our sea legs, we could once more move about freely. That was a treat in itself. At nine in the morning of the next day, we had our first opportunity of seal hunting. A big weddled seal was observed on a floor right ahead. It took our approach with the utmost calmness, not thinking it was worth while to budge an inch until a couple of riffle bullets had it convinced of the seriousness of the situation. It then made an attempt to reach the water, but it was too late. Two men were already on the floe, and the valuable spoil was secured. In the course of a quarter of an hour, the beast lay on our deck. 
flayed and cut up by practiced hands. This gave us at one stroke at least 400 weight of dog food as well as a good many rations for men. We made the same coop three times more in the course of the day and thus had over a ton of fresh meat and blubber. It needed scarcely to be said that there was a great feast on board that day. The dogs did their utmost to avail themselves of the opportunity. They simply ate till their legs could carry no more of them, and we could grant them this gratification with a good conscience. As to ourselves, it may doubtless be taken for granted that we observed some degree of moderation, but dinner was polished off very quickly. Seal steak had many ardent adherents already, and it very soon gained more. Seal soup, in which our excellent vegetables showed to advantage, was perhaps even more favourably received. For the first twenty-four hours after we entered the ice, it was so loose that we were able to hold our course and keep up our speed for practically the whole time. On the two following days, things did not go quite so smoothly. At times, the lines of floors were fairly close and occasionally we had to go round. We did not meet with any considerable obstruction, however. There were always openings enough to enable us to keep going. In the course of January 6th, a change took place. The floors became narrower and the leads broader. By 6 p.m., there was an open sea on every side as far as the eye could reach. The day's observations gave our position as latitude 70 degrees south and longitude 180 degree east. Our passage through the park had been a four days pleasure trip, and I have a suspicion that several among us looked back with secret regret to the cruise in smooth water through the ice floes when the swell of the open Ross Sea gave the Fram another chance of showing her rolling capabilities. But this last part of the voyage was also to be favoured by fortune. These comparatively little-known waters had no terrors to oppose us. The weather continued surprisingly fine. It could not have been better on a summer trip in the North Sea. Of icebergs, there was practically none. A few quite small floebergs were all we met in the four days we took to cross Ross Sea. About midday on Jan 11th, a marked brightening of the southern sky announced that it was not far to the goal we had been struggling to reach for five months. At 2.30 p.m., we came in sight of the great ice barrier. Slowly, it rose up out of the sea until we were face to face with it in all its imposing majesty. It is difficult with the help of a pen to give any idea of the impression this mighty wall of ice makes on the observer who is confronted with it for the first time. It is altogether a thing which can hardly be described. But one can understand very well that this wall of 100 feet in height was regarded for a generation as an insuperable obstacle to further southward progress. We knew that the theory of barriers' impregnability had long ago been overthrown. There was an opening to the unknown ream beyond this. This opening, the Bay of Wales, ought to lie according to the description before us, about a hundred miles to the east of the position in which we were. Our course was altered to true east, and during a cruise of twenty-four hours, along the barrier, we had every opportunity of marvelling this gigantic work of nature. It was not without a certain feeling of suspense that we looked forward to our arrival at the harbour we were seeking. What state should we find it in? Would it prove impossible to land at all, conveniently? One point after another was passed, but still our anxious eyes were met by nothing 
but the perpendicular wall at last on the afternoon of january twelfth the wall opened this agreed with our expectations we were now in longitude one sixty four degree the self-same point where our predecessors had previously found axis we had before us a great bay so deep that it was impossible to see the end of it from the crow's nest but for the moment there was no chance of getting in the bay was full of great floes sea ice recently broken up we therefore went on a little farther to the eastward to await developments next morning we returned and after the lapse of a few hours the floes within the bay began to move one after another they came sailing out the passage was soon free as we steered up the bay we soon saw clearly that here we had every chance of effecting a landing all we had to do was to choose the best place end of section ten end of volume one chapter four from madeira to the barrier part two recording by naksha